The Empire Strikes Back. I don't know if you're familiar with the Star Wars series, but you get the point that when power is confronted with power, it strikes back. When power is threatened with the loss of power, it grasps for more power. When a little child can provoke a kingdom, the kingdom will stop at nothing. In the uh, history annals of World War II, I've read recently about a new front that had been opened as the Allied forces were landing at Normandy, the beaches, and as the Germans were preparing to try to fend them off in that battle with 350,000 troops, they also had troops stationed in Italy holding the southern front, and they were also opening a new front to the east with Russia. You would think that there would be a necessity to conserve your power, but they didn't. They threw it all because when power is threatened, it grasps for more power. The empire, the Roman Empire, which had created um, an alignment with the Herods, the Herods were tetrarchs, rulers of four regions of Palestine. They had created this symbiotic power. And when the Magi from the east, people completely unrelated to the Roman Empire, when they came through looking for a new king that had been born because they saw a star in the sky that had told them Magi were probably more like astrologers. They looked to the skies for information. They looked to the skies for direction. And one of the things that they had noticed was that this particular star told them that there was a new king born. And so they were traveling to the west to try to find this king. When they got to Jerusalem, they met with King Herod. And as he learned of their prediction, he became alarmed. And if you remember, you'll hear it in the story next week when we go back to the Epiphany. Um, but, but he said to them, well, when you find this new king, tell me as well, so that I can worship him too. Not only is power grasp for power, power lies. <laughs> and so King Herod has no intention of worshiping a new king. King Herod's purpose is to make sure that his power stays intact. Now, in case you have some um, benign picture of King Herod, he's not a terrible guy. I mean, he's a king, yeah, but... He's a human. He has feelings too. 
Well, he does. He did. Um, but what, what we sometimes fail to recognize about King Herod was that he was ruthless and that he could become uh, volatile, enraged quickly. There was one point in his kingship where he had three of his sons put to death because he saw them as a threat. When he was on his deathbed, he knew he was dying. When he was on his deathbed, his last order was for his soldiers to go to every family and to massacre one of the family members so that when he died, he was certain that everyone would be mourning. That is how sick this man was. So some scholars try to say, well, Herod would never have killed babies. And no, Herod would kill babies. Maybe not lots. I mean, Bethlehem was a small village. They estimate that perhaps there were 20 little two-year-olds and under living in Bethlehem. But it would be that region, so there'd be a, the region of the village. And so there might be maybe 30, 35 little ones but they were slaughtered by Herod because when the wise men, the magi, did not come back, he intensely experienced the threat of power being taken from him. And when power is threatened, power grasps for more power. After these 30 baby boys are, are murdered, a voice was heard weeping with great lamentation. The scripture tells us. Matthew's reciting the story of Rachel. If you remember Jacob's second wife, Rachel, his beloved wife, remember he's the one that, she's the one that he wanted to marry, but her father tricked him and got him to marry Leah first. And so Rachel is heard weeping with great lamentation. This is taken from Jeremiah 31, uh, verse 15. This is what the Lord says. A cry is heard in Ramah, deep anguish and bitter, bitter weeping, Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for her children are gone. Rachel is weeping for the slaughtered innocents. Rachel is weeping for the children who have gone into exile. And Matthew tells us that Rachel is weeping for, for the holy family who has been forced into exile in Egypt. Joseph took Mary and Joseph uh, took Mary and Jesus out of Bethlehem into Egypt because of the power that was grasping for more power. So what do you do when you're confronted with a power 
that threatens you, that seeks to maintain control over its power by threatening you. This is something you will not hear very often in the world outside of church. But this is what the Scripture tells us. When confronted with power, you listen to God. When confronted with power that seeks to grasp more power, you listen to God. Now, there are, very, there are many different voices that you can listen to. Uh, when you get up in the morning, you can listen to your news feed or your newspaper, depending on how you get your news. You can listen to the sports. You can listen to entertainment. You can listen to work. You can listen to emails. You can listen to Facebook. You can listen to Instagram. Oh, and you can listen to God. Now, I am no different. I get distracted. This is not a judgment. This is a reality check. Are we listening to God? Listen to how Joseph listens to God and how carefully focused he was on listening to God. Starting in the, the sermon from a week ago, in verse 20 of chapter 1 of Matthew, as Joseph considers this, uh, Mary's pregnancy and their engagement, and his decision to try to dismiss the marriage quietly, as he considers this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you will be able to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through the prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and he took Mary as his wife. He listened to God, and he responded to God. Today, in our reading, in chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, Joseph once again hears from God. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. You see who Joseph is listening to? And then there's another reference to highlight from today. 
in verses 19 to 21. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared to, uh, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up. The angel said, Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel, because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus, his mother, with Jesus and his mother. Now, if you're like me, we listen. If we have a little time, we'll squeeze it in. But how do you listen to God, especially if you don't see angels in your dreams? How do you listen to God? We listen, but it might be difficult to hear God. Some have said, well, it's just too hard for me to focus on my devotional time. It's just too hard for me to focus on listening to God. It's too difficult. And so the question for followers of Jesus This may not be the question to ask of believers, but the question for followers of Jesus is this. Do you not do something just because it's too hard? When I was a little boy and I got my first bicycle, I had no idea on how to ride the thing. But I was determined to learn how to ride the bike. It was hard. Thankfully, we had a little hill on our sidewalk that gave me some momentum to figure out how, how to do the balancing thing. There were no training wheels when I grew up. It was a matter of getting on the two wheels and figuring it out. It was hard, but I wanted to do it. I was not the brightest and best at learning languages. I remember studying, everybody was studying Spanish, so I thought I'd be different in junior high and study French. And uh, so they had like a semester class in eighth grade, kind of prep us for going into uh, um, having a a foreign language in high school. We had to have one year in high school. So then I decided to continue to take French in high school. And uh, it didn't go well. My teacher even suggested that I continue to speak in English. (laughs) So I went off to college, and in college I needed two years of foreign language. So I thought, well, I'm German, so why don't I study German? And besides, uh, it's a good good, uh, academic language to know. And so I studied German let's just say I struggled through German in college and did well enough to pass, but it was not going to be a stellar mark. And I certainly wasn't going to be speaking any German. And then I thought, you know, I've considered going to seminary, and they say if you go to seminary, you have to have two years of Greek. So then my junior and senior year of college, I thought, well, why not try Greek? Now, 
that has got to be the craziest thing to do for a person who has struggled with foreign languages his whole life, right? But there was something about the Greek language that connected with me. And it began to make sense. It was more mathematical than English, you know, is all over the place. And and, in the Romance languages are okay. You can figure them out somewhat. But but what really got to me was the Greek because it was so analytical. All the different verb endings. All the different nouns and noun endings. And I began to figure out the system. And it was like, wow, this makes sense. And then I went off to seminary. And they said you needed to have minimum of a year of Hebrew in seminary. So I spent the summer doing a year crash course of Hebrew. Now, I developed this reputation of being very poor with languages with my brothers. And they used to razz me about it because they're all really brilliant, smart people. I'm the one that they had to bring the averages down, the family averages. And, and I remember telling my mom after my summer Hebrew class that I was going to take my Ezekiel class in Hebrew. And she was amazed. You see, my mother never doubted me. Mothers don't do that, right? And, and my mother uh, took great pride in that. And when she told my brothers not only that I was taking Ezekiel in Hebrew, but that I had been asked to be a Hebrew tutor at seminary, which I had, my brothers all laughed. I mean, the only reason I'm telling you the story is because foreign languages are hard for me. But by the grace of God, somehow, God helped me to figure it out. And when we want to listen to God, it may not be easy, but we don't give up. We do the outlandish thing, like after struggling through German, you you say, now I'm going to try to tackle Greek. Crazy. That's how we listen to God. Yes, it's difficult. But just because it's difficult doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing it. What would it sound like? What would it look like if we listen to God as much as we listen to our other feeds, news and sports and entertainment and emails and Facebook? What would it look like if we listened to God as, with as much time and effort that we put into those other mediums? And there's some that have argued that the more scientific and technological that we become, nothing wrong with that. But the more scientific and technological that we become, the less spiritual we are. Too often we focus on abject human power instead of focusing on Jesus and his power. And when we spend time listening to God, we spend time with Jesus. And it can be an amazing experience. And it can be an experience where there doesn't seem to be anything happening. 
But God is working through those experiences. Now Joseph seems to listen mostly to God. You don't hear Joseph going to town, catching up on the news. You don't hear about Joseph reading the, the news tablet. You don't hear about, jo well, there, wasn't, there was not a literate culture at that point in time. There was nothing to read. There was nothing to see. There was nothing. You, you heard the news. And the news was not frequent. And the news was mostly frightening. And so Joseph spent most of his time either working or listening to God. And Joseph not only listens to God, but he also responds to God, to God's calls. When, when God speaks to him and tells him to follow the call, Joseph does precisely that. Remember, he had already decided in his mind that he wanted to dismiss Mary's relationship with him, the marriage that they were contracting with each other about. He wanted to, to dismiss that quietly, so he didn't bring any shame upon her, but he was not going to be married to her because it wasn't his child. And what did the angel of the Lord say? Take Mary as your wife. And what did he do? He took Mary as his wife. He's not just listening, he's responding to what God is calling him to do. When King Herod feels threatened and wants to slaughter all the two-year-old boys in and around Bethlehem, the angel comes to Joseph once again and warns him and tells him, take the baby, Jesus, and his mother, Mary, into Egypt. And what does Joseph do? In the middle of the night, as he awakens from this dream where the angel has appeared to him, he takes Mary and Joseph, and they flee into Egypt. And they remain there for at least two years. And then he hears once again, Herod has died, and all those around him are no longer in power. It is now time for you to go back to Israel with Jesus and his mother Mary. And so Joseph returns. Joseph listens to God. And he might be a great teacher for us. as he responds to God's calling. That's what Joseph does. And as he does it, he finds hope. He listens, he responds, he finds hope. He listens, he responds, and he finds hope. Rachel's weeping. Matthew shares this story with us, I think, for a particular reason, and that is because her cry, her lament, her weeping becomes a cry of hope as well. In, um, in Jeremiah 31, I read about how she cries over the loss of the children in verse 15, but two verses later in verse 17, 
It says this, there is, there is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children will come again to their own land. There is hope. And then if you go a little bit deeper into this chapter, 31, in verses 31 through 34, we are reminded of how that hope will materialize. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant. I will make, excuse me, <clears throat> I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord, um, I, will, uh, I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel on that day. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, um, nor will they need to teach uh, their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord, for everyone from the least of them to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord, and I will forgive them their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. The new covenant. In the midst of Rachel's weeping, in the midst of her lament, she points us to the hope that we have. And the hope comes to us from this young baby boy, Jesus, who has been the one marked to inaugurate this promise. He would one day confront acute, violent power, and instead of grasping for power, he would respond to it differently. Paul writes about this in the book of Philippians in the second chapter. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privilege. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's how we listen and respond to God's call. So as the empire strikes back, are you listening?